First Peter chapter 2, verse 7 to 10. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offence. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, once again we come before your awesome throne, thanking you and praising you for who you are and, and what you've given us. And Father, we, you, we have in our hands the most precious document this world has ever seen. We thank you that we can look into it, that you have preserved it perfectly for us, and we can trust every word and syllable in it. Father, we pray that it would speak to our hearts this morning. Father, we pray that the Spirit would, would be working that it would share and teach, and by your grace, Lord, that we would learn. And Father, we pray that our Saviour would be lifted up in this place this morning, and that as we leave this place, we would uh, live more fully for him, our hearts more fully his, that every ounce of being that we are and that we have, Lord, would be following him. So we thank you once again for this time. We pray that it would honour you. And we thank you for the salvation that we share this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, most of you know of, of who's passed or crossed over the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Who's done the walk over it? Anyone done that? No one. Only celebrities do it. Paul, so you've done it. Celebrity. Okay. Sydney Harbour Bridge is, uh, is over a kilometre long. It was built in, I think it was completed around 1930. Um, and, and if you look at some of the photos of when they were constructing it, it looks pretty primitive, the, the, the type of equipment they were using. But what's amazing about the Sydney Harbour Bridge is that it contains about 50,000 tonnes of steel. Right? 50,000 tonnes. And they started it at two ends over that harbour, and, they, and it met in the middle. After all that construction, they were, and they had to be pretty precise with the way they lined it up at each end. If they were off too much, the, 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 the middle wouldn't join. See, if you're off even by a little bit at one end, and your direction wasn't right, you wouldn't meet in the middle. So after all that construction, they met in the middle, and they were 13 <laughs> millimetres out, which isn't bad when you think of it. After all that, and you know, they didn't have what we had today. So, what I want to uh, ex explain to you this morning is how important it is to get the foundation right and get it going in the right direction. Because if you don't get it going in the right direction, um, you may end up in a very different place. And I don't know, most of the men out there, the fathers, whenever we get, and we, we curse the Swedes all the time, don't we? Whenever we get furniture from Ikea um, and we get the instructions and, uh, and it tells us, you know, all we need is a little tiny, that little key they give you. Yeah. And then it looks so easy on the paper. But then if you get it wrong, if you start off something wrong and you put 
like I normally do, I put a, a you know the the actual shelf upside down from the beginning, and then you put the whole thing together. You realise you've actually got it the wrong way around. I don't know how many times you've done that, but I've put together a fair bit of furniture in my time, and there was one particular piece of furniture. It wasn't furniture; it was actually an exercise bike. Okay, so I can't blame the sweets for that one. That was a Chinese, but I put together this bike, this exercise bike, and one of the the rims that went around the the wheel. Um, I actually didn't realise, it was right at the beginning, but I put it backwards, right? So I'm busy, and this thing's building up and up and up and up and up, and it's finally got all the, you know, to the final, got the little handlebars on and got everything looking good. And then when I went to get on, it didn't work because the thing was pointing the wrong direction. And then that meant I had to disassemble the thing. So I'm not sure, anyone else done anything like that before? No, none of you. Yeah. <laughs> I should have realised it. That's what you have kids for. That's right. That's right. There you go. Being good fathers, learning how to delegate, huh? Yeah. That's the way. But um, what I want us to understand this morning is the purpose of what the Bible calls a cornerstone. So when you when you built a home, especially in the old, olden olden days. Um, you would start off with a cornerstone. And the cornerstone would be placed first. It would have to be perfect. It had to be cut just right because the cornerstone provides you with the direction that you're going in that, that way and the direction this way. So if it wasn't cut perfectly square, you'd be, you'd be in, a, in a heap of trouble. Okay? It would go off in, in, in... You wouldn't be square, the actual building. And you also, you also needed to make sure it actually hit the edge of the property that you were on. If it didn't, then you would go into someone else's property. So, last week we looked at how God is building a home. He's building a house. And the Bible says that we are lively stones that are being used by God to build this beautiful uh, structure. And today we're going to look at how important the cornerstone is for that structure and what happens when you remove that structure or when, when you don't put the right cornerstone in. This today is going to be, uh, this sermon is going to be a sermon of contrasts of different, of what's good and what's bad and how um, certain people have rejected the cornerstone that God provided to build his home. So let's look at the first two verses. It says, Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So these verses today demonstrate this stark contrast in the response that people have to God and his plan and the result that occurs because of that. So it says unto us who have believed, believed on him, the Bible says that he is precious. So the ones who have chosen to believe the gospel and have put our, our souls in the hands of Christ, the Bible says he is precious. He is altogether valuable, very valuable, because of who he is and because of what he's done for us and because he's the vehicle in which and through which we obtain eternal life and get to heaven. If 
Jesus is like an ark, and I've used this illustration before. Um, it's only the ones who are in the ark that will eventually be saved from the wrath to come. And we've put our trust in him, that he is truthful, and that he is who he says he is. C.S. Lewis once says that you can't really patronise Christ by saying that he was just a good moral teacher. You can't say that he was just a, you know, a, a moral leader or some sort of a, a person who was a philosopher or a, uh, or a prophet because he said things about himself that if they weren't true, it would either make him the most cra- one of the most craziest per- people who ever lived or would make him one of the de- most devious liars that ever lived if it wasn't true. So when he says that he's the only way to God, when he says things such as he has the ability to forgive sins, that he has the ability to control nature, that he has has the authority, all the authority in the universe and in the world, when he says that he existed before Abraham, when he calls himself the very names that God called himself in the Old Testament, he either was a complete crazy person or a very devious liar, or he was who he says he was. And for us who sit here today, my hope is that we've trusted in who he says he was because we believe who he is. The difference between a saved believer and a professing Christian and someone who simply calls themselves Christian is... The believer has actually looked at Christ and said, you are precious to me. You are absolutely precious. There is nothing more valuable that I I ever want in life more than you. You understand how precious he actually is. He's not just a religious figure. He's not just a, a person who represents a moral code or a religious system. He is our most precious saviour and king. There is a personal relationship that comes from that. There is a connection that exists. Because when you put your soul and your life and your eternity into the hands of someone else, it means you actually trust them. You're not going to put the most precious thing that's valuable to you, your soul, into the hands of someone who's a possible liar or a deceiver. It means we've trusted him. And when you have that level of trust, and you've taken that risk, let's say, all of a sudden there's a special connection that happens there. The difference is with people who call themselves Christians is that they've never taken that step. They don't have that connection. They haven't thoroughly thought about the fact that their eternal soul is in the hands of someone else. They haven't done that. In essence, their soul is still in their own hands. And they may call themselves Christian, but they may simply be um, fans of a particular system or um, adherence to a particular philosophy or process. The most important difference is that the, the genuine believer is someone who has put their faith in Christ, okay? not in a system. But there are some who have thoroughly rejected him. And to those, the Bible says here in these particular passages, to those who willingly disobey the truth that God has given them and reject the gospel. The Bible says that 
this stone that God has provided, which the leaders of every false religious system and philosophy have rejected as their cornerstone. He says he has become something altogether contrary to them. That despite the fact that they have rejected him, guess what? They're not going to stop God's program. They may, they may try and resist. They may, they may try and, and, and put him to the side or reject him and reject who he says he is. But in the end, God is going to always have his way. It mentions that these people are those which stumble at the word and are disobedient. It calls these people, if you look at this particular uh, verse in verse 7, it says, the stone in which the builders... Notice how it says the word which the builders disallowed. Well, it calls these people builders. But who are these builders and what are they building? These builders were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They were the Sadducees, the Pharisees. They were the, the people who were meant to have the truth of God and they should have recognised when Jesus came. They should have recognised when the Messiah, who fulfilled all the promises in the Old Testament, when he came on the scene, they should have been the ones who said, there he is, there's our cornerstone. Instead, what they did is they rejected him and they chose to build their own structure. They're building a house of worship. They're building a religious temple, a religious system. And it's these people who build these religious structures who the scriptures are talking about here. And the people who are part of those systems, as part of those temples and, and, and religious systems, are the people who actually, like the Bible says, like us, we've become lively sons that God is building together. They've actually allowed themselves to be built into that another structure, a different structure. So Peter says that in verse 5, he says, You also are lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So too, men, to seek, men seek to use people to build up their religious systems, don't they? Because you can't have a religion without people, can you? So you have religious leaders who are continually seeking to, to build on the structure they already have. And it's these disobedient people, which began in Jesus' day, who reject Christ, reject what he says, and are building their own structure outside of and against God's plan. Now, it says to these type of people, it says to these people who have rejected Christ as the Saviour, as the Messiah, as the Christ of God, it says that three things have happened at least. It says he has been made the head of the corner. Okay, you'll notice, in, um, you'll notice at the end of verse 7, it says, But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. So even though they disallowed him, the Bible says that he has made him the head of the corner anyway. Peter is not creating some new doctrine over here, by the way. This is not the first time this is being said. He is simply quoting something from the Old Testament that was already foretold what would happen before. So turn with me to Psalm chapter or Psalm 118, and we'll look at verse 19 to 23. Psalm 118.
says in Psalm 118, verses 19 to 23, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go in, un, in uh, into them, and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord, into which the righteous shall enter, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art, art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvellous in our eyes. Peter was quoting from here. Peter knew about this particular verse. And he understood what this passage actually meant. You see, the gate that this, this passage speaks about, where it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. And then it says in verse 20, This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter is the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus says that he was the gate. Remember, there is a narrow gate and a narrow path. And wide is the gate and wide is the path that leads to destruction. And, and most people travel down there. But Jesus says, if you want to enter into righteousness, you need to go through the narrow gate, which is him. He is the gate, which is spoken about in this passage over here. And in that gate, when you enter into that gate, you become righteous. Because he is the gate of righteousness. And it's because of what he's done that we become righteous. So that's why David says here, um, the gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. You see, you can't enter into righteousness without being saved from sin. Someone can't say, no one can save themselves from the sin that they bear. You have to enter into that narrow gate. And the reason the gate's very narrow is because most of the world wants to believe that they can fix their own lives up and pay for their own sins. That somehow their good deeds will outdo their bad. And somehow they can stand before God and say, look at what I've come with. God, God look at what I've done for you. And somehow God will be impressed by the wonderful things that we do. But we know the scripture teaches the exact opposite. People are amazed when, when you tell them that Christianity teaches that no one is going to heaven by their works. When you tell that to people in the world, they get shocked. When you say to someone in the world, doesn't matter how hard you try, doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter what you think you bring to God, you are not getting in. You, can't, you aren't good enough. And people say, what do you mean? Like they get completely bamboozled by that. Because their whole life they've been brought up thinking that you have to try to live up to a moral code. And if you do, God's going to weigh a balance and you're going to be hopefully found in the right way. But then Christianity says that there's a narrow gate and you have to drop, before you get in that gate, you can't take all your rubbish with you. You can't take all your supposed good works and your, and your wonderful deeds. The Bible says you have to drop it there at the gate because you can't fit through the gate. You have to leave your old self behind. You have to leave your sin behind and you have to leave your supposed good works behind. You have to go into that gate with nothing. And, and Jesus is that gate. Jesus is the gate that leads to righteousness and he brings righteousness. In fact, these uh, what five verses here essentially explain the gospel. This is not just prophetic, this, this, this particular uh, psalm here, but it summarizes the gospel. It says that there's, there is a gate that leads to righteousness and if you enter into that gate, God becomes your salvation. 
And the proper response to that in verse 23 says, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That's the proper response a Christian has when they come to God and they realize that Jesus took all of our junk, all of our sin and iniquity, and he gave us everything in response to that. He took it all upon himself, paid our debt, and then he gave us a, something we never deserved. It's marvellous in our eyes. That's the right response that a Christian has. But Peter's message, when he quotes this, is not just a, a message to the Christians to say, look, this is what happened to us. It's marvellous how we got saved and how we entered into that gate and how he made us righteous and he becomes our salvation. But it's a warning to everyone who actually rejects that gate, who rejects the path that God has actually made, who rejects the cornerstone that God has provided. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. As we see the Lord himself actually repeat the same and quote from the same passage. And you'll find something interesting. Matthew chapter 21 verse 42 says, Now Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of his day, the ones who were meant to have recognised him and understood who he was. He says, in verse 42, Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Look at his next verse. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. That's a scary thing. If you'd, if you'd heard that, if I was on the other side of that, of that particular um, statement, I would have been pretty scared. Because what he essentially was saying, that he knew already that they would reject him. He knew already they would betray him and they would hand him over to the Romans and that he'd be killed because he came saying that he was the Messiah. He knew already that they were conspiring to kill him. Because he was ruining their little plan, you see. They had the structure all nicely worked out. They had themselves in prime positions. They were powerful in many ways. And here Jesus came along and said, it's not about you, it's about me. I'm the cornerstone. I'm the one who God has sent. So all of a sudden they got threatened. And Jesus plainly tells them that they will reject him as the cornerstone. But... God will make sure that the cornerstone is still laid anyway. And so he, he interprets that a bit more for them. And he says, guess what? He says, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you. And it's going to be handed over to people who will actually produce fruit from it. Who was he talking to? He was talking to the, the Jewish religious leaders of his day. Now, Paul builds on this again. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. It 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. Now, I've just, Jesus had just said, you are going to reject me. I am the cornerstone. And God is going to take away this privilege from you and give it to someone else. And let me show you what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. It says, now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner stone. You are the ones that the kingdom has been handed to. He took it away from them, and he's handed it to us. So we who were strangers, foreigners, before, we were alien from the covenants of God. The Bible says that it's been handed to us. And that we're being built upon the foundation of the prophets, the apostles, and all the people, with Jesus himself being the cornerstone of this new building that God is erecting. And the ones who rejected him as their Messiah, as the cornerstone, are left out for the moment. So God made Jesus the head of the corner, the head of a new building of faith, the corner of the kingdom of God. And despite religious leaders rejecting Jesus as their leader, as the foundation of God's program to save mankind, God has done the very thing that they thought that they had stopped. You see, by killing Jesus, they thought they were going to remove him as a threat to them. They think, if we get rid of him, once he's out of the picture... We don't have to worry about him anymore. Instead, what they did was they played right into God's hands. God already knew what they were going to do before Jesus was born. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, God already knew exactly what was going to happen. He prophesied it before. He talked about the suffering servant. They should have realized already what they were going to do themselves. And instead, they just kept on right, in, right on and just did it anyway. When it spoke about them. By killing Jesus, they thought they'd stopped him. When the Romans crucified Jesus, what did they think that they were doing? They thought they were going to bring a bit of peace, peace and harmony. Because if we give the, these Jewish people what they want, it's going to calm everyone down. It's going to keep them happy. Well, that didn't happen. Because what happened was he ruined both of their plans, the Jews and the Romans. The Romans had all types of problems after. Yeah, When Jesus rises again on the third day, they're conspiring again to try to work out how to, how to keep this thing quiet, how to keep a lid on it. You've got people going around saying, oh, I've seen him. I've seen him over there and I've seen him over there. Three days later, after they, after they, they crucified him. They caused themselves more problems than they could ever imagine. They neither achieved peace nor were able to stop what God had started. Because I'll let you in on a secret. If God wants to do something, he'll do it. And there's no matter of how much conspiring or how much getting together or how much plans people make, it doesn't matter how many things you think you have on your side, um, when God wants to do something, there is no stopping him. So this is the main message from this particular passage. You cannot stop God's plans. If you will try, if you try, you will fail. You cannot resist the will of God. You will always come out second best. And if that's true for a nation, if that's true for all these guys getting together, 
If that's true for the, the Romans, who were the most powerful nation on the, on the planet at that time, if it was true for the Jews, who were meant to have all the knowledge of God and had the Old Testament in their hand, they should have known all this stuff, if the very ones who had gotten together and conspired couldn't stop God and his plan, then what chance have you got to stop God's plan as an individual? If you resist the will of God, you will come out second best every time. I'm not speaking this to you as Christians, although as Christians sometimes we, we become a bit hard-headed. Okay? Calabrians, of which I'm descended from, are known to have hard heads. Right? In fact, unfortunately, we actually pride ourselves on being hard-headed. Yes, it's true. But if you want to be hard-headed with God, your head's not going to stay very hard for long. He'll get his way with you. It's better to do what God wants you to do and be at peace with God than getting a smack from God by being a disobedient child. The message of the gospel, if you look at it, is essentially a message to surrender. Have you ever thought about that? It's a message to surrender. Stop fighting against God. Stop running. Stop resisting him and simply admit, I've been wrong and I need you to save me. I need, I'm happy to do it your way, not my way. It's a, it's a message to surrender to God's will, to humble yourself under his merciful hand. And plainly, if you can't humble yourself before God, then you cannot, you cannot ever get saved. You will not be saved if you cannot humble yourself under God. Because the Bible simply teaches that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And how is a person saved? The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith. So if you keep resisting God, if you're not saved here this morning, or you don't know whether you're going to heaven, or you don't know if you're saved, and the possibility is you may not be saved. The Bible says if you continue to resist him or, tr or not humble yourself under him, the Bible says he'll resist you. And guess who can resist longer? So my challenge to you this morning is to understand that wherever you are in life, whether you're a believer or non-believer, don't fight God's plans. Because in the end, you're going to lose anyway. So you may as well give up now. Surrender. Lay down your arms and say, I'm at your mercy. Whatever it is you want to do, do. Because God is a wonderfully merciful God. And this is the huge advantage that we have. He's not the sort of God who, once you've given up and you say, I'm at your mercy, he knocks you off. He doesn't do that. He actually, and Jesus says, anyone who comes to him, he will know in no wise reject. He will not turn away. doesn't matter what you've done in the past. You can come to him with all the rubbish that you've actually had and you can say, look, this is me. Will you take me? And the Bible says he'll never reject you. So that's a pretty good deal. Yeah? If, you, uh, if you haven't done it already, I would encourage you to do it today. I don't mind if you even do it while I'm preaching. Yeah? 
If you bow your head even now while I'm preaching and you don't listen to me for the rest of the sermon, I'm happy you've done that. I would rather. So it says that he has been made the head of the corner despite people rejecting him as the head of the corner. God is going to keep on building that building. Okay, So the scripture then says that he has become a stone of stumbling. Now, what does that mean? It says in verse 8, and a stone of stumbling. How do people stumble? Well, how is Jesus then a stone over which people trip? How is he seen as a restriction or a hindrance or a burden that he has, you have to get out of the way because you're going to fall over? Well, it says here that the stumbling is over, in this verse, the word of God. It says, even to them that stumble at the word. And they stumble at the word of God and it causes it to become disobedient to it. They, can't, they struggle to swallow it. What it's saying to them. So people have a way of actually taking the word of God and actually just trying to modify it a bit. So it's a bit more palatable. And they'll try to change it or maybe ignore a few verses here and there that don't seem to fit their own uh, preconceived philosophies. So let's look at some of the things that people might um, see the word of God or Jesus as a hindrance to them, as a stumbling block to them. Well, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, no man cometh to the Father but by me, that's a bit of a hindrance for some people. You see, because I only have to go one way. People like to think that God's got, what was that show called, where you can have all these different doors and you pick a door and whatever was, or pick a box or whatever it was. People like to think to themselves that, you know, God's got multiple paths that all lead to the same, the same place. The truth of the matter is that you may have 20 doors in front of you, but only one leads to life. So God says, choose a door with the cross on it. <laughs> Don't choose the doors that have all the other sparkly stuff all over them or all have different types of symbols on them because they're all going to lead you to another place. So some people, that's a stumbling block because it means they have to throw away all the other stuff that they've actually put their trust in. Or how about Jesus says, there's another stumbling block, where Jesus says, if you love your mother or father or son or daughter or indeed your own life more than him, you're not worthy of him. That might be a stumbling block for some people who love their family and love their spouse or love their children. And Jesus comes along and says, um, you have to love me more than them. I need to come before them, not after. So some people find that a bit of a stumbling block. How am I meant to do that? How can I possibly love you more than, more than my spouse or more than my children? But Jesus demands that our love for him needs to be greater than the, the than the love we even have for ourselves, this, let alone the, uh, the people that, that are in our lives. Well, how about this one? Jesus says that you can't be his disciple unless you deny yourself and take up your cross daily. Yeah? That seems like a, that's a nice thing to say, take up your cross daily. Unless you were living in the Romans' times, and you might have seen your neighbour or relatives hanging up on a cross on the side of the road. And then you realise, what's he talking about? This thing is an instrument of death and humiliation. It's actually a, a symbol of oppression because that's the way the Romans would keep the Jews under control. They'd publicly humiliate them and torture them in public. So here's Jesus saying, I want you to take that 
and walk behind me every day. So if Jesus had been born in our times, he may not have been a cross. Let's, let's, let's play the hypothetical. How are people executed these days? What, electric chair? Or whatever? Maybe, it was, maybe we'd be walking around with little electric chairs around our, uh, our, our necks. This is the point. How palatable is an electric chair? How palatable is a noose? How palatable is a chopping block to chop off someone's head? These are all ways of executing people, and so is a cross. You can, you can beautify a cross by making it of gold. And it's easy for us maybe to, to look at that thing and say, look how beautiful the cross is, you know what I mean? It's not a thing of beauty. Believe me, it's a thing of death and pain and suffering. And the Jews may have had a bit more of a stumbling block there than us. Because for them, when they looked at that, it reminded them of their own oppression. Well, how about this? Jesus says that his followers are to be holy as their heavenly Father is holy. That we are to be strive to be perfect like he is. No, that's asking a bit too much now, isn't it? <laughs> holy? You mean I have to be separate from everyone? I have to be willing to, to lose my reputation in society? I have to be willing to lose my job, my, my friends, my family? They might all reject me? Yep. You know, we had a baptisms here a couple of weeks ago, and, and that was a wonderful, wonderful thing to see. Baptisms are beautiful. Uh, the blessing is that we have it in a confined area with each other. No one's going to be throwing rocks at you while you're actually coming up out of the Jordan. But in those days, if pe- your family was walking by the, the Jordan River and they said you coming up out of the Jordan, being baptised in the name of Jesus, uh, you may have had a slightly different reaction to the collapse that we had in there. Some people might even stumble at the imperfection of Jesus' followers. Some people don't become Christians because they see there's hypocrisy in the church. They see that Jesus' followers aren't perfect. So they spot, they spot the actual imperfections and use them as an excuse not to follow him. These are just some stumbling blocks, which you may know already, that cause a person not to receive Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. But then it says something else. It says that he became a rock of offence. So not just a stumbling block, but a rock of offence. So what's, what are people getting offended about here? Well, let's we go back to the cross. Paul says, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then is the offence of the cross ceased. Guess what? The cross is offensive. It's offensive on a number of levels. Not just one, not just to the Jews. It's offensive on, on, on a multiple level. The cross is an instrument through which the world would be saved. But it's offensive on many levels to many different types of people. To the Jew it became offensive because it was a Gentile instrument of torture. It was a symbol of death and oppression. So the Jews thought to themselves, how could a Gentile thing of torture ever become central to God's plan to save people it's, it's, it seems opposite to that the cross is offensive in our culture because it symbolises the depravity of man when you look at a cross and a, a man dying on it and the blood dripping down that wood and it wasn't polished wood by the way what it speaks about is the 
absolute holiness of God compared to her utter, utter depravity. And what had to be paid there? It shouts out that there's a price of sin that has to be paid by every person in this world because our very nature and our descent is an offence to God. God had to fix it. If he didn't, we couldn't. We would all be lost. And the fix wasn't pretty. The fix cost a heap. Blood is, is, is an offence to most people in our culture, especially in our day. You know when you buy packaged meat from your supermarket and most kids haven't seen any animal being slaughtered ever. But take an animal now and cut its throat in front of your children or even in front of ourselves and blood becomes an offensive thing, doesn't it? It's seen, it's seen as barbaric in our culture that God would allow someone like Jesus, an innocent person, to be slaughtered in that way, like a lamb being slaughtered, to sort something out, to fix up a problem. Couldn't God have done it in a more cleaner way? in a more sort of, you know, neat, without all the pain and suffering and all, the, and all that nasty stuff that we see with whips and, and crowns of thorns and, and beards being pulled out and all that sort of stuff. Surely all the blood that was spilled, surely it, it, he could have done it more simply than that or more neater than that. And we say that because we live in a thoroughly sanitised and pre-packaged world. Don't we? We don't kill our own livestock. Our, our society is so sanitised, so packaged. Our senses are offended by blood being poured out by a man as payment for my sin. It's so offensive to some people that they've even made Bible translations that have taken out the word blood and they've replaced it with something else. When Jesus says that he is God in the flesh, that's offensive to some people. That's offensive. It became an offence to many then and it is still today. Turn with me to John chapter 5. Look at a, let's look at a few places where Jesus absolutely offended the people that he was talking to. John chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. It says, But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, that's up to this point, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, guess what? Making himself equal with God. They knew what he was saying. They weren't stupid. He says, when he said God is my father and I work and he works and I and my father are one, they knew what he was saying. And he was saying, I'm God in the flesh. When you look at me, you see the father. So what, did they want? what was their response? They wanted to kill him even more. Turn to John chapter 10, verse 30 with me. John 10, 30 to 33, it says, I and my father are one. 
Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They weren't clapping. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. From which, for, for which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. That's why we're knocking you off now. That's why we're taking up stones to finish you off. Because he was making himself out to be God. That's offensive. Turn back to Mark chapter 2 verse 5 with me. We'll look at one more. So they bring a man with a palsy, can't walk. They bring him on a bed to Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 5, When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Uh, why did this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Spot on. Good, good reasoning. Only God can forgive sins. Did they accept it? No. Jesus actually says to them, I think in that particular story, he says to them, what's easier for me to say? What's easier for me to do? To say to this man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? Yeah, he, even, even, he, he almost taunts them. Do you know what I mean? You're, you're saying, I'm not, I can't forgive sins? All right, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? And they know there's a guy in a bed like this. Okay? And he can't, he probably hasn't walked for years and years. He goes, just to show you that I have the power to forgive sins, he says to the man, get up and walk and take your bed and go home. To this day, the Jewish leaders in the synagogues today, hate Jesus. They hate him. They hate him and they call him a blasphemer and a liar and someone who was an idolater. And just as Jesus was rejected as the cornerstone in those days, they are still rejecting him today. And the Bible says that they are living in some sort of a spiritual stupor or slumber. Turn to Romans chapter 11 with me. I want to show you of what has been happening or what has happened. <coughs> Romans chapter 11, verse 8. Romans chapter 11, verse 8 says, According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, because they've rejected him. Eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. That's still valid now. Unto this day. Look at verse 9. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see, and bow down their back alway. I say then, and listen to Paul, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. 
Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? You see, Paul's looking forward to something. Paul's saying, if the fact that they rejected Christ opened the door for God to hand us the kingdom and made us the beneficiaries of their rejection... Paul's saying, if we've benefited from their rejection, the Bible says that there's going to come a day when they're going to be jealous of what we have, when they realize that they made a mistake. And Paul says, if the fact that their fall meant riches for the world and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness, which means how much more is Paul looking forward to the day when the Jews turn to Christ and say, He is the Messiah. You see, it was set. It was God knew already they would reject Him at the beginning and would crucify Him. And because of that rejection, we receive salvation. But Paul says, if that was a blessing to us, what about when they come around? What about when they come to their senses and they realise what they've done? The Bible says it's going to be absolute, an amazing thing. So that's what we're looking forward to as well. For the days when, for the day when the Gentiles and the Jews are all singing the same tune, and that that day will come. The Bible says it. So turn back with me to Matthew chapter twenty-one, verse forty-two. We read a few verses here, but I want to finish with one more. Matthew 21, verse 42. Okay, so Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same as become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the, king of, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Now verse 44 is the important one here. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whom, whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. So there are two options here where Jesus says, regardless of whether you uh, believe, believe that I'm the cornerstone or not, he goes, there are two things that, that can happen. You'll either fall on this stone and you'll be broken or the stone's going to fall on you and you're going to be ground to powder. I think I know which one is probably the, the, the one he's encouraging people to take. Okay? So let me, let me share with you what I believe is happening. Every person in the world is building up some sort of a structure in their life. You know, we often talk about people that build up walls. And they've built up walls of defences. Well, each person is building up a building in their life. And you've built it on a certain foundation. Now, whether you're a believer, whether you're not, every person builds up a building. And that building is the building which represents their life, their belief structure, their worldview, and how everything seems to fit together. Okay? Some people build it in response and special responses to how they've been treated in life um, I shared with the young adults um, on Friday night um, one of the distinguishing features or one of the common threads that scientists have found with people who are gay who call themselves gay 
is that they've been abused as children. So people build up a type of wall around their lives to deal with what happened to them or how they, how they have to see the world. And that's maybe just one part of the story. But that's not just for them, that's for every person. See, in the West, we have a lot of cor different cornerstones you can build your house up with. The first and most popular one is called secular humanism. It simply means that man is the most important thing on the planet. And we determine what's right and what's wrong. So once you start with that principle and you put that block in place, you then build up everything else around it. Evolution fits as a nice, neat block next to that as well. And then you, you might build something with a career and build next to that. And that your structure will go higher and higher. Because, see, if you believe in secular humanism and evolution and you don't believe there's a God, maybe atheism is part of that structure or, or, or foundation as well, all the, the preceding blocks that you keep putting on top are going to be built on those beliefs. So the decisions that you make... Your, the, the way you see your own life, for example, if you're an evolutionist or you don't believe in God, you're not here for any particular reason, so guess what I'm going to live for? I'm going to live to make as much money as I can or to enjoy myself as much as I can. That's, my, that's the tower I'm trying to build up. But just like the Tower of Babel, there's confusion once you get to the end of it. It doesn't make sense. And whether you build your building on socialism, evolution, capitalism, religion, careers, family, doesn't matter what it is, whatever you put on that foundation which determines the rest of it, unless Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of your life, then you're building your house on sand. You're building your house and it's not right. It's weak. It can't stand the test of time. And the day will come when the Storm's going to raise the waves and the wind's going to beat against that house. And you know when that is? The day of your judgment. And the Bible says the house cannot stand. So unless Jesus is the cornerstone of your belief, unless he is the foundation of your life, then you have built your house on shifting sand. And Jesus challenges every person to examine what type of home you're actually building. Are you building the house? Or is God building the actual house? Because if you're building your own home, it isn't going to be good. Sorry. doesn't matter how much uh, architectural work you've done in the past or how much experience you have in building houses. If you're trying to build your own home, you aren't going to get very far. And Jesus challenges every person to come and fall on him fall on that stone because if you fall on that stone the Bible says you'll be broken yep that's exactly right you will be broken you'll be humbled and you'll understand your absolute lack of anything that's good in you but in that brokenness the beauty is you'll find wholeness in your brokenness God will give you the healing that you need that beautiful hymn Amazing grace. It says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, but then grace my fears relieved.'" So 
you first need to come to that, that position of fear and brokenness before God comes and mends your heart again. If you fall on Jesus, the Bible says you'll be broken. But if you don't fall on Jesus, the result will be that he will fall on you. Let's see what happens if you fall on Jesus. Look at verse 10 and 9 and 10. It says, if you fall on Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. If you fall on him, then ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. What is God doing? God is building a home that he lives in. And he wants you as part of that particular home. God is building the house. And look what he's called us. If you've fallen on Christ, the Bible says that you are a chosen generation. It's nice to be chosen. It's nice to be special. That's gener- this generation the Bible speaks about is not aimed at a particular race anymore. It's not, you don't have to be Jewish to be in there. You don't have to be Italian even. Chosen generation means a group of people who now have a new identity. They're no longer citizens of the earth or of a particular nation. They're actually citizens of heaven now. This generation is actually... This generation the Bible speaks about is our ambassadors purely because we don't belong here anymore. God's leaving us here as beacons to this darkness and as, and as lights in this world and as messengers of his, of his truth. But we don't belong here and we know it. So we are a chosen generation. We are a royal priesthood. You know, do, you, do you know your royalty? Royalty. The Bible says we've been adopted into his family. There is no greater royal family anywhere than God. There are plenty of royal families in the world. Some of them are okay. Some of them are a bit crazy. But God's royal family is the royal family that outstrips every other royal family put together. And the Bible says that we have become, by birth, into this family. We've become his or part of his. And not just that, priests. Because every person is now a messenger of God to the world. We represent God to the world. We've become a holy nation, a peculiar people. That word peculiar doesn't mean that we're strange, although plenty of us are strange in here, I know. But that that word peculiar means special. It means distinct. It means different in a really, really good way. And it says that we are a people who have obtained mercy. So we've been chosen, we're royal, we're priests, we're holy, we're special, we've been forgiven. Do you understand who you are today? Don't wait for your deathbed to understand these amazing truths about you. Believe them. Accept them by faith. Believe the word of God and you'll see your faith grow when you understand what God says about you. 
And what are those people called for? It says, why have they been chosen? Well, we've been chosen. We've been given all these amazing, wonderful things. It says that we should show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our lives should demonstrate, should display the amazing mercy and love of God in this world. And our lives should be filled with so much thanks to God that people see it. Praise is not simply a declaration of, of, of our feelings toward God when we get together, but a demonstration of what God does in a person's life when he saves them from their sin. It's a demonstration each and every day. Our lives should be a declaration of God's amazing grace. Is it for you? How amazing is God's grace? Do people see it? Do they see it out in the world? Do they see how amazing God's grace actually is? That's what we've been called to do. And to do that more and more each day. Now let me just close with a word to the fathers. Being a father means that our children should be able to see this life of praise. They should see our life reflect what this passage says about us. That we are a chosen generation. We are royal priests. We are a holy nation. We are special people. We are ambassadors in this world. We have obtained mercy. Do our children see that, men? Is our life one of praise and sacrifice to God? Is praise and is, our, is the fact that we've been shown so much mercy evident to other people? Fathers, do children see this in your life? Do they see it? Fathers, does your life demonstrate the fact that you are of noble birth? That you are a priest to your children? That you are chosen for a purpose? That you are a part of the kingdom of God? And that you are special in God's eyes? The Apostle John tells us, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is the call of, of, a, of a, a godly father. Fathers, you have such a weighty responsibility. You maybe don't understand it. Not only have we been called as, as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Hey, that's a pretty big ask. Okay? Not only do we have that that we, we're aspiring to and trying to get, but the Bible says that we as fathers are the very model and should represent the exact character of who God is to them. So when our children see us, they should see the way God the Father's like. So as they grow, they don't get a warped sense of God. Do you understand? The responsibility is unbelievable. Because if we fail in that, we damage the very picture to our children of what God is like. Psalm 127, verse 1 says, Except the Lord build a house, they labour in vain who build it. Unless the Lord builds the house, who's building your life? Are you building with your own stones and sticks and, and things? Or is God actually building something in your life that will one day testify to his amazing grace and love? Is what's happening in your life today a good building 
or a bad building. May our children see the word of God in our lives. May we live those words each and every day. May they see our Saviour in the words that we speak and the things that we do. To everyone I remind you, examine your hearts, search the scriptures daily, and put all your trust and hope in Jesus. He is the cornerstone of our faith. He is the exact representation of the Father. God bless you.